0: This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Joseph Bottom is one of the most important public intellectuals in the United States, a graduate of Georgetown University. He holds a doctorate in Medieval Studies from Boston College. He's a former editor-in-chief of the important journal First Things. He is currently professor of cyber ethics and director of the Classical Studies program at Dakota State University. Back in 2015, he released a book entitled The Anxious Age, and I enjoyed a thinking in public conversation with him about that topic and that book then also expanded to an important essay he wrote about the religious shape of political ideas about the same time. As I say in this program, those works turned out to be nearly prophetic. But our conversation today is going to pick up on many of those same issues, but move to the year 2020 we really do have an opportunity to update that conversation in a way I think you'll find, as I did, quite fascinating. Joseph Bottom is also the author of a new and important book entitled The Death of the Novel. But today we're going to be talking about a range of issues that are very much tied to ongoing conversations about the shape of our culture, how it got here, and why it matters. Joseph Bottom, thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Thank you for having me. You know, we're kind of picking up on a conversation of about five years ago. In 2014, you wrote a book that I still recommend very widely, Uh, An Anxious Age, The Post-Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of America. But in in some ways, our conversation back then was also uh, prompted by uh, a very significant article that you had published in 2014 entitled The Spiritual Shape of Political Ideas. And uh, so I want to welcome you back for this conversation. And in the first place... I just wanna say, you you must have the satisfaction of having written a book that ended up being prophetic.
1: Well, prophetic, small p, sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ross Douthat and I, when the book first came out, the New York Times columnist Ross Douthat and I had a debate at Georgetown mm-hmm. uh, about the book, and he was about to release his own book called Bad Religion, so this kind right. of stuff was very much in his mind, and he, um, recently wrote in the New York Times that this book of mine, An Anxious Age, seemed interesting five years ago, but somewhat abstract. Uh, And he said, turns Mm -hmm. out, like now, it's impossible to deny the spiritual hunger that is in these people and manifesting it, that are marching in the streets of the city and looting and uh, expressing uh, a spiritual hunger, it seems to me, that, like all unfulfilled, or like many unfulfilled spiritual hungers, expresses itself in violence.
0: And uh, is doing so right before our eyes. Uh, If uh, I may show hubris here, uh, I'm going to set down one of my theological axioms I teach in class uh, as a theologian and write about and talk about, and that is that, uh, I'll call it, Moeller's steady state theory of religion, uh, which is that that, uh, religious uh, fervor doesn't ebb and flow. It's just differently directed. At any given time, and as a theologian, I'm going to say that's because I believe of the imago dei, and uh, God made us at His image. As uh, Augustine, you know, spoke of his heart having no rest until it found its rest in Thee. I I, I think this fervor is going to take some some shape. It did uh, it did in the '60s, and uh, it's doing so again now. And in between, uh, it was basically a flight into narcissism, but but now back onto the streets again.
1: I think that's right. But mm-hmm. in America, it occurs with a kind of particularity mm-hmm. that's worth our noticing. The general proposition that human beings are always thus is absolutely right. Mm-hmm. But different cultures, different times, different histories make it manifest itself in different ways. Right. Uh, and on the streets of America right now, we're seeing a particular form of this spirituality, of uh, the spiritual yeah. hunger that is the human, the restless heart that yeah. is the human. And what that particularity is, I claimed five years ago, um, is shaped for these people, though they know it not, yeah. as or by the death of the mainline Protestant churches. Yes, That it is a particularly Protestant uh, form uh, that, of course, is not Protestant at all. Uh, it's from the mainline churches, the demons in America that they used to corral and redirect toward um, self improvement, toward sanctification, toward civic activity, uh, a lot of other things. When the churches failed, when those mainline churches that were, I claim, and uh, I've always claimed, the very definition of America, uh, when they failed, they let loose those demons. And yeah. the demons burst out onto the street and, where, and began to go to the places where they could survive, notably politics. Yeah. As I've said over and over again, if you think your ordinary political opponents are not merely mistaken, but actually evil, you have ceased to do politics and begun to do something resembling
0: religion. Yeah, certain, certainly something uh, resembling theology uh, in the categories of good and evil. Uh, you know, as, as we're thinking about this, by the way, you, you talk about particularly American. I was telling some students the other day, uh, the, the way I look at it is this, as a student of literature and theology and trying to understand the world, it takes about a century to find out what Russians think. It takes a, a decade or so to find out what uh, Germans think. It takes about 10 minutes to find out what Americans think. Uh, it gets translated into... Uh, words, action, politics, culture, very quickly here. And I think that's a part, and social media has just made that even more incendiary. And so a lot of the things that have been kind of bubbling under the surface, and uh, maybe a repressed religious urge, it's uh, its no longer repressed. And you make a... Right.
1: And the fact that they don't know that it's religious yeah. is an irony Yeah, uh, here. And of course, the religions that emerge out of this kind of theology-less spiritual anxiety, uh, as Max Weber taught us to to think about spiritual anxiety as an actual influence on history and culture. Uh, And the fact that they don't recognize that makes it worse. Mm -hmm. It allows it to achieve some kinds of expressions without any sense of a limiting argument. G.K. Chesterton, once one of his famous lines in Orthodoxy is... um, the world is full of uh, Christian impulses gone mad. Right. What we've got here are Christian ideas gone mad. They have broken free from the, the first of all, from the framework that made them make sense. But secondly, from any limiting principle. Yeah. There is nothing here that can stop it. Uh, I recently pointed out that insanity is not always illogical. Sure. Sometimes it's perfectly logical. Absolutely, it's a thought carried out to the, its furthest mm-hmm. consequences without ever letting any other thoughts intrude.
0: Yeah, I mean, Dostoyevsky. Theology, if no one else. Theology makes that is the
1: sophisticated clear. view, or, or so, theology is a sophisticated intellectual activity of limitation. Yeah. It limits these these dangerous thoughts by saying we can push the idea of original sin as far as we want, as long as there's Christ's salvation.
0: Right to limit. Well, you know this is uh, this is what Douglas Murray in, in Britain has pointed out that uh, that in many ways where we are right now is that uh, all the uh, all the consciousness of sin uh, is acute in Western society, but without any hope of salvation and uh, without it's a like you say it's a, or as you quoted Chesterton. Uh, it, it's as if uh, all the impulse for the need for salvation is there, but the, the meta narrative and, and confidence of Christianity is, uh, is now gone. Uh, in, in your book, An ancient Age, but even more, more uh, explicitly in your article, The Spiritual Shape of Political Ideas, uh, you really help to document that uh, it's not just a generalized religious impulse or say theology is a mood, it's, it's particular theological doctrines that have now been evacuated of Christian content, but filled with a new kind of fervor. So, I mean, there's an enormous, and, and you made this point in an anxious age. Uh, this, is, uh, this is an age in our in our culture aching for redemption, uh, just uh, demanding to be redeemed and, and ready to uh, make whatever public signal needs to be sent of redemption.
1: Well, you and I have, have talked theology over the years at old meetings that uh, we used to, that Richard John Newhouse used to get together and, you know, some of our conversations. Um, mm-hmm. And those are, of course, the important
0: things. Yeah.
1: But what, what I was doing in an anxious age, what I was doing in the spiritual shape of political ideas, to some degree, even what I'm doing in my most recent book, which is called The Decline of the Novel, is not theology it's sociology. I don't choose to make a decision in public in that those yeah. writings about whether we should all become Catholic, or which of course we should. Oh, absolutely. But, uh, <laughs> no, but no, no. I don't make I mean, that kind absolutely of...
0: Absolutely, you did not make that argument in the book.
1: <laughs> no, I don't, because it's really an observation yeah. about the current situation and its sociological roots. And in the book, And really, ever since, I've held what I call the Erie Canal thesis of American history, Mm -hmm. which is, in general terms, that uh, Max Weber was absolutely right, and we need to have um, an understanding of spiritual anxiety as a motivator for public uh, actions and public decisions and cultural change. But specifically, in America, that the first question you should ask, if you're a historian, of any moment in American history is, what is the state of Protestant religion at that moment? Mm -hmm. And if we ask that, because this is your country, I mean, this is, you know, it's not my country. Jews and Catholics were allowed to live here off and on, but the Mississippi that ran down the middle of this country was what we would come to call mainline Protestantism.
0: Yeah, It's all the
1: churches that struggled against each other and had what... uh, 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 Alexis de Tocqueville called uh, this central current yep. of American manners and rules. And at this mm-hmm. moment, there are plenty of believing evangelicals. Uh, and there, for that matter, there are plenty of believing Presbyterians and other mainline Protestants. But the real condition of Protestantism, in America, the main current has passed out of those churches and it's in the hands of what I call the post-Protestants.
0: Yeah, well, and I think Don't I think that's a brilliant analysis. I, I just want, as, as a theologian, uh, I want to argue with you just a little bit. You actually, actually are doing theology. <clears throat> now, I, I know what you mean when you say you're not. But uh, but I, I want to say, I, I think in an anxious age, you actually do a brilliant theological analysis of a figure like Walter Rauschenbusch and uh, the uh, the transformation of American Protestantism. Uh, in the social gospel, with Protestant liberalism, basically uh, transforming Protestantism into something, and you you even cite Gresham Machen, uh, you know, not just a new version of Protestantism, but a different religion altogether. But but that's what won institutionally, and and uh, throughout your writings, you've been really clear that this Protestant Mississippi that so shaped the culture uh, is is no longer Protestant. Uh, now, as you say, let's be fair, there are, st- there are still fervent believers uh, in the Episcopal Church USA, but, but they're so marginal in the uh, institution's life that it has almost nothing to do with it. I mean, just, just in the last few days, the Catholic, excuse me, the Episcopal Bishop of Chicago, uh, you know, is in the New York Times celebrating new non-theological rituals for corporate consultants. I mean, that, that, that's what we're down to uh, in the Episcopalians and, uh, as a denomination. But you're exactly right. It was a worldview of Protestantism that made the American experiment in ordered liberty possible and then shaped its civic life for a long time until it didn't.
1: Except I'm claiming it still does. Mm-hmm. That, the, that the genealogy of this passes through those mainline churches far more than it does um, argue, for instance, that we can talk all we want about the Puritan roots of America. And in the 1950s, when American studies was suddenly introduced into the curriculum of colleges as a field, uh, there was Perry Miller, there were a lot of people looking back to the Puritans. But I actually argue the history of American religion has many threads, of which the Puritans are a major Mm -hmm. one, but they are all gathered for a moment. In the 19th century, in upstate New York, this is why I call it the, the Erie Canal thesis. Yeah. This is where we get the Millerites. This is where we get the, you know, the knock on the table spiritualists. This is where we get the Mormons. This because Rauschenbusch taught at the University of Rochester. This is where we get the Social Gospel yeah. movement. All the threads of American religion pass through the Burnt Over District, mm-hmm. uh, and we get. Uh, a kind of narrowing of religious possibilities that will give way to uh, the landscape that I grew up in, which yep. is small town America or small city America, mm-hmm. in which there's the Methodist church on the corner mm-hmm. and two blocks away, there's the Presbyterian church. And then, you know, and then there's a Bible church uh, down by the river and there's the beautiful Episcopalian church and then there are the Catholic. And that's basically the shape of America That, as I understood it. When those churches fail, they release something into American life. Now, we can talk about why they fail and whether or not they had to fail uh, logically. And I think those are very interesting questions, uh, both historically and theologically. But the fact is they did fail. And right now, when you see, as we saw in Seattle, a very carefully videotaped scene of white protesters washing the bare feet of black protesters yeah. uh, as a statement of their own guilt the religious fervor here and the religious roots the vocabulary of those actions is so obviously derived from roots they know not
0: I, and i agree with that wholeheartedly and i think your analysis is brilliant and 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 as a matter of fact and in my writings and speaking, I speak about the very same impulse, but I, I think what strikes me is a discontinuity that, that uh, the metaphor I would use for it is of uh, Xi Jinping's uh, China as compared to Karl Marx or Marx and Engels communism. It's not wrong to call the Communist Party in China communist, but it's not right either. Uh, and i think when you say protestant as a confessional protestant i have to say that's not wrong but it's not right either because it, it is uh True. it's not just that it's uh it's the rituals and the impulse uh it, it's it's that we've got an absolute denial and that's one of the, the categorical distinctions between black lives matter and the civil rights movement the civil rights movement was explicitly biblical in its themes it you know it was it was preaching the prophets it was claiming Christian identity and uh, with clergy as the most uh, credible uh, uh, and charismatic leaders. But n- now it's uh, it's a repudiation of that, as critical race theory was a repudiation of the civil rights movement.
1: Yeah, that's that's clearly right. Um, if this is Protestantism, which, of course, I don't believe. Right. That what's taking place in Kenosha, Wisconsin, is um, the madness of Methodists. I just, I don't believe it. Right. Uh, But it is genealogically related and in ways that I think you would agree with. Uh, And also it's formally related. We've talked about this before with my idea of of formal shapes of ideas in the spiritual shape of political ideas, for instance, but it's formally related to uh, some of the old mainline stuff. If, we can't call it Protestantism, which we clearly should not. Um, What we can, when I say it's post-Protestantism, what I mean is it's gestural Protestantism in the way that that we speak of gestural forms of painting schools, where you have some of the shape of it, but you don't have the content except And so there I'm wholly with you. I understand exactly what you mean with the China analogy. It's perfect, but I do want to say there's maybe something more here, uh, which is there's some content that passes over. It takes new shapes, but the content is still there. Uh, Or maybe the shapes pass over and get new content. Think of it this way. The worst of all possible worlds to live in that has any kind of Mm -hmm. consistency about it would be St. Augustine's view of the world without Christ. Absolutely. Then you live in a world of despair. You live in a world of guilt. This is King Lear. This Shakespeare deliberately sets that play in prehistoric England, and you have a world of Augustine's view of the universe, except without the second half of it. And it's a grim world, and it's a dark world, and Cordelia dies anyway, and all of Lear's suffering has been for nothing. Yeah. And this is that that world of darkness. It's the world in which maybe there's justice. sometimes there's justice, but never is there mercy.
0: Yeah and it's uh, it, it's actually impossible to find these uh, Christian doctrines and virtues uh, untransformed in this. Uh, you know uh, original sin becomes white privilege. And uh, the ritual confession becomes, as uh, as we just saw at a law school faculty in the last few days, you know, uh, just uh, saying uh, I I I'm a racist uh, and, and continual uh, confession, and uh, and then all this is then without redemption. So in other words, uh, just even about the time we're having this conversation, uh, in D.C. the city released a formal report. You know if effectively calling for the federal government to remove the washington monument and the, and the jefferson memorial uh and you look at that and you go well you know let, let's say ludicrously for a moment you could move the washington monument let's just let's just suspend our rationality well, for a moment. To, to
1: stone mountain which is clearly where it belongs
0: right or, or pick up both of them and put them in the <laughs> the, the 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 deserts uh you know in, in the west uh, but, but let's assume we could do that for a moment. It would bring no satisfaction to those who are demanding it. In other words, it, it, it's catharsis. Christianity, and I say this to you as a Catholic and, and I as a Protestant, Christianity offers no catharsis. It offers atonement. It's a very different thing and, and points to the kingdom of Christ eschatologically. Um, one, one of the, the problems with catharsis is it just doesn't actually work.
1: Or it works so briefly, yeah, that it merely awakens the hunger for further catharsis. Yeah, um, but you know there is a perfect consistency to demanding that we tear down the Jefferson Memorial and we move the Washington mm-hmm. Monument, and David Farragut has to go. You know, I mean, this is the, the right. list of and those Flannery monuments. O'Connor. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear that.
0: And Flannery O'Connor.
1: And Flannery O'Connor. I was right. the one who broke that story about. Loyola Marymount, getting rid of Flannery Uh, O'Connor's name off of a dorm. Uh, Because uh, we have so many monuments to Catholic novelists in America. You know, we could afford to lose a few of them, right? I I, I trip
0: over them daily.
1: Yeah, you know, women Catholic novelists really dominate the landscape. It's so absurd. It's so ridiculous, except it's not absurd. It's logical. It is following out this thought all the way to the end as if this thought has no limitation, as if yeah. this thought had nothing that it had to conform itself to in reality. And the thing we know is the when we do theology, the thing we know when we do philosophy, uh, the thing we know when we do adulthood yeah. is that there are competing claims, that there are compromises that have to be made, that no idea gets a free run all the way to the end of the human.
0: Yeah. Well, Jody, you're talking controversy there because you just mentioned adulthood. And these days it's uh, it's so rare and confused that it's been made into a verb. Uh, the first time in human history, adult to adult or adulting as a participle is, is now a thing more uh, remarked about in the culture for its absence or its challenge than for its success. Uh, you know, I, 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 I have to talk recently about, uh, you know, the students, and I mean the, like the editor of the student paper, the Daily Tar Heel at the University of North Carolina, blaming the institution for opening up when a week later it had to close, and then they said, you know, actually it's is almost direct quote with the editor of the paper saying, if your plan was for 18 to 24 year olds to act responsibly, maybe you need a new plan. Well, civilization doesn't have a new plan.
1: <laughs> right. Um, that is extraordinary. Um, and there is something adolescent about it, you know, about these ideas that we're speaking in. It is the adolescent, after all, the adolescent boy who reads Ayn Rand and yep. decides that he's going to follow that idea out to the end and be a libertarian and all the rest of it? It's an adolescent move, and the adult awakens from that and says, "That was interesting, but it's not complete, uh, and its lack of completion is a failure, a lack yeah. of a lack of adulthood." But, you know, lots of young men go through that. Lots of young women go through that. And the question is whether or not, as a culture, we are going to coddle and encourage it. Well, and, and a uh, lot of the grievance yeah. studies departments and universities have decided that their purpose is to coddle it.
0: But, you know, uh, Rand went so far as to argue, Ayn Rand, that... Uh, Sympathy is an illegitimate impulse, and that care or sacrifice for another is an illegitimate impulse. And again, that works fine if you're in boxer shorts living in your mom's basement. It doesn't work fine if you want to get married and then have children, because you're going to have to sacrifice for those children. Uh, You're you're going to have to do what is not in your immediate self interest if you're going to get married. But and but then that goes hand in hand with the fact that uh, the decline of marriage and the uh, the. Incredible fall off in the birth rate, the, these really go hand in hand. They're not inexplicable.
1: That's a, that's a really sharp and nice term now that I like a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also swing it back to the changes in the mainline Protestant churches. Mm-hmm. When Tocqueville says that however much the sects, the, the rival sects, argued against each other and the two seed in the spirit baptized, wanted nothing to do with this other Baptist, you know, when he works his way through them, um, he says, however much they squabbled and argued about the deep theological points Mm -hmm. that mattered most to them, they somehow nonetheless combined to set the central current of manners and morals in America. And we can look at what they did in order to achieve that.
0: Can Uh, I give you a good illustration of how that worked? Uh, oh, Can I give you a good illustration of how that worked sure. in our lifetimes? Uh, the Boy Scouts of America. Uh, by the time you reach the Boy Scouts of America in the 1950s and 60s, the vast majority of Boy Scout troops are located in either Protestant or Catholic context or increasingly then uh, Latter-day Saints, Mormons. Sure. Uh, so that by the time you reach uh, the Boy Scouts, when uh, when I joined the Scouts about 1970, um it was the same morality. It was the same moral code. It was it was the same basic ethical universe. It was the same practices, the same uniforms, and all the rest. And uh, but you had a God and Country badge, which, which was related to your specific church. So the Catholics, uh, you know, had requirements for the God and Country badge that were Catholic, and the Methodists and the Baptists. Uh, in my hometown, they weren't even moved by by two blocks, just one. Uh, they. Uh, that they had their own but but in the main a Boy Scout was a Boy Scout and I, I to me that is one very clear statement of this Protestant consensus uh that uh, and and you could say you know using will herberg uh you know Protestant Catholic Jew uh that you, there was this religious mainstream and the Protestants dominated there's no doubt and set and set the rules I, I accept your charge that we built this world in that sense uh but not not all the responsibility for what happened thereafter
1: I. Let's that's a wonderful example. Another along some of that same line that I was actually more reminded of than Christian professions of faith
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: by those law school faculty who had to introduce themselves as racists. Right. Uh, yeah, there, there was an element of the profession of faith there. Uh, but there was At least also the I was more reminded of yeah. an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. Yeah. In which you have to stand up and say, I'm an alcoholic. Right. And of course, that was a in exactly the way that uh, the Boy Scouts were a non-denominational Protestant American institution. Alcoholics yeah. Anonymous began as exactly that.
0: Yeah. And you may have noticed a flurry of articles just in the last several weeks about the demand for non-theistic, uh, non-religious forms of Alcoholics uh, Anonymous, because uh, that's just, the, you know, the recitation of uh, dependence on a higher power is just too much, which I think gets to the post and post-Protestant. When when the Oxford movement came about and uh, out of that uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, there was enough Protestant structure to the culture that higher power was actually a term that was used by people like Norman Vincent Peale, uh, who I'd say in many sure. ways are post-Protestant. Sure.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, Al, I think that's really well observed. Also, mm-hmm. think of it, um, think how long this was building. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nietzsche, who, you know, uh, René Girard taught me to think of Nietzsche as one of the great theologians of the 19th century, doing theology in the mode of anti-theology. Exactly. Uh, And uh, ever since he made that remark to me, I've, I've, you know, thought about Nietzsche in this way. At one point, he goes after uh, the the English, who he thinks are just 50 years behind everybody else in Europe, the sophisticated Mm -hmm. opinion in Europe. And he denounces English flatheads and little moralistic females a la George Eliot, which is just a wonderful phrase, as Nietzsche so often has. But for the crime, or for the failure, Mm -hmm. which was thinking they could preserve Christian ethics without Christian metaphysics. Right. That you could get rid of God and yet somehow keep that ethics. Yeah. Here we are. 120 years after Nietzsche. And what do we get? We get this idea that Alcoholics Anonymous is gonna work if you but we can just strip out the incidental part of the metaphysics of the of the God stuff. It was madness in George Eliot in the 19th century. It's madness in the people demanding what you say uh, in the 21st century. But even more, yeah. I think. The mainline Protestant churches, thanks to Rauschenbusch, thanks to the victory of the social gospel movement, were already giving up on the metaphysics, and seeing that that required them giving up on some of the old ethics, and when you gave up on some of the old ethics, you ceased to form America in the way that you used to do. In the book, I put it this way, I say, those churches mattered more when they wanted to matter less. Uh, when their yeah. concerns were theology, they yeah. mattered more when their certain concerns became public events, they mattered a whole lot less. Yeah.
0: Let me document a little bit more uh, the truth of what you 're saying here. I think, I think that 's a brilliant insight. I remember in your book where you make that a particular statement about lutherans when uh, when when Lutherans were mostly about uh, God. Uh, they, uh, they mattered a great deal well, when you, and, and I don't mean th- this just about Lutherans, but any denomination that, that shifted its emphasis into the, uh, the social sphere basically lost its voice. But one of the things as a theologian I keep trying to, to go back to is the fact that if you look at the claims of the Protestant liberals, um, Rauschenbusch, to an extent, but in particular people like Harry Emerson Fosdick uh, in the early 20th century, their argument was, we have to abandon the metaphysic to keep the morality. Uh, and John D. Rockefeller bought that entirely, you know, and even constructing the Riverside Church. It was, it had all the symbols of transcendence, but there, there was no theism basically uh, in it, uh, certainly by the end of Fosdick's uh, ministry. But, uh, but the thing is, is that their heirs have now become the most antagonistic to Christian morality as, because you know, they said sacrifice theology, you can keep the morality, and actually it was the opposite, of course.
1: No, it's well observed, and and I think exactly right. Um, But I would say that when the mainline churches wanted to matter sociologically and politically and culturally, their turn was to the ethical issues of the day, Uh, and they wanted to opine on that from a position of being moral people instead of being a position of uh, believers in a certain account of the universe. And there are a bunch of consequences to that, but you can see what you just described, you know, that you can't preserve the ethics. In fact, now it's the ethics that you have to reject. You can see that, it seems to me, when uh, the mainline Protestant churches uh, decided to embrace divorce, yeah. which was the 30s to the 50s, and of yeah. the 60s for some of them. But uh, now, I, again, I want to set aside the theological argument about divorce, right? Which I, you know, as a Catholic, profoundly disapprove. Um, and as a sociologist, I profoundly disapprove it. I think the effect on children is unbelievably devastating. Right. But set all that aside, and just think about the logic of it here. If Tocqueville is right that this, what would become the main line, sent the central current of manners and morals, how did they shape America? How did that happen? It happened through the church's understanding of the shape of human life from baptism to marriage to funeral. When Tocqueville points to the, what Burke would call the small platoons, all those passages in Tocqueville, Al, that our communitarian friends yeah, latched yeah. onto about the small institutions that, you right. know, that America had that France did not, if you actually look at his examples, they are primarily drawn from volunteer fire departments and burial societies. Mm. Uh, that, you know, we could form these groups to, to right. make sure that our funerals are not unattended. Uh, right. That's the, these churches mm-hmm. gave a shape to life in
0: mm-hmm. America
1: through their marriage theology, through their insistence on marriage, uh, and their insistence on the importance of funerals, uh, and their insistence on the importance of baptism for that right.
0: matter. Right, no, a- absolutely. Uh,
1: and yeah. that gave a shape to life, and we had talked earlier about adulthood. Mm-hmm. Why was adulthood in the shape of life that we were expected to have as Americans, because the churches, in their central current of moral and manners, gave that shape to us. Right. When they began to embrace divorce, uh, it seems to me you start to see a breakdown of the shape that they gave American life and the importance of the marriage culture and the rest of it. Now, it's a minor, small example, and the ethics is gonna long outlast that the, the power of the mainline churches and the ethics. But it is a sign that already very early on they were willing to trade their uh, mess of pottage yeah. for a pot of message. Yeah, uh, they oh, were willing I like to that. give it up.
0: Yeah, that that's good. That that that's uh, in the internet age. That's a meme. <laughs> but. Uh, and one that I agree with profoundly. But I, I want to take back one step and say I think you're absolutely right. But the one thing that uh, that might have been slightly prior to that in actual ecclesial action was uh, the sudden reversal on the issue of birth control going back to uh, 1929 in the Lambeth Conference, uh, in which case not one Christian church identified as a church had approved any form of birth control uh, that, that was actually interventionist uh, until 1929. And, uh, and it wasn't as shocking as everyone thought it would be. And before long that came. And so I, I think the separation of, uh, the, of marriage from sex and sex from procreation and eventually uh, mer- uh, div- divorce and no-fault divorce, all that was a transformation that left the churches who accepted divorce and birth control at face value Uh, largely bereft of any authority to try to tie these things back together uh, by the time you get to the sexual revolution. That's exactly
1: right, Al. Uh, And here's an example that ties together a bunch of the lines that we've been talking about, and I'm quite taken with now that it occurs to me, which is, I will always love the Southern Baptist Convention for their change of heart on abortion. In particular, when Roe v. Wade was first decided, the Southern Baptist Convention, at the convention meeting, passed a resolution in praise of that decision. Because they were just following out the logic that mm-hmm. had been developing since 1929, that had been developing right. for a long time. And, you know, because you just follow that thought out as though there are no other thoughts, right? You just right. the logic of that thought ends with uh, the Southern Baptist Convention saying, hooray for Roe v. Wade. A step forward in freedom, and then the Southern Baptist Convention rethinks that. They stop and say, "Wait a minute. What if we bring in other considerations? What if we bring in other thoughts? What if we do theology, which is the bringing in of other right. thoughts and the making of things coherent?" And the Southern Baptist Convention, fairly quickly, um, as such things go, fairly quickly. Uh, About six or seven years. Them. Yeah, It was six or seven years, was it?
0: Yeah. So, it, the situation as a Southern Baptist, not out of uh, trying to defend Southern Baptist because the resolution uh, the resolutions of about 1972 and 73 are indefensible. They actually were kind of worse than you described in one sense because one of the resolutions came out before Wade, uh, Roe v. Wade, and basically kind of set the intellectual apparatus up that, that looks like Roe. And uh, and so, that that's just even more horrible. But... Uh, the the fact is that that became that resolution or the 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 resolutions of that era but one in particular as you say uh it became the catalyst for a populist uprising in the southern baptist convention and so that that resolution was produced by elites uh and and they were they were very much they identified themselves increasingly in that mainline protestant world the the elites uh, the, the people who led the seminary i lead when i came saw it as their aim to try to make it look like. Uh, we, we were right there in, in the world with uh, Yale Divinity School and Union Theological Seminary, you know, but on the conservative end, of, but, but that world, not that evangelical world. Uh, and uh, all that changed radically within a period of a very short amount of time. And, uh, and so by the time you get to 1980, you've got a very clear repudiation of that previous resolution and a, a very pro-life statement. And uh, so I, I appreciate you drawing attention to it. I wanna say in some sense it's worse but it does show you that uh, the people in the Southern Baptist Convention were going to put up with that kind of nonsense, thankfully. One of the things
1: that happened um, in the 80s uh, and the 90s, uh, which I mm-hmm. you know, lived through more clearly, um, is in the churches, the distinctive Protestant charismas, the distinctive denominational identities mm-hmm. began to blur. In ways that I think were profoundly unhelpful uh, and, in fact, dangerous. I, you know, the, the failure of Methodism, the the failure of the of the Seventh Day Adventists, for instance, or um, you know, the Disciples of Christ, which basically ceased to exist after being one of the founding members of uh, the National Council of Churches, one of the seven dominant. mainline protestant churches when was the last time you met a disciple of christ i mean it's extraordinary collapse Uh, but these denominations had distinct confessional identities charismas in the catholic vocabulary Uh, and they're passing alice the diminution it makes me sad that this this way of christian living is has just faded away now I don't want those ways. I don't want to live though, you know. I'm not gonna be a Methodist, uh right. or you know, but I can admire it at its at its peak. I'm well, not gonna be a Southern Presbyterian, Baptist. but I can admire yeah. it at its peak. I'm not gonna be a Pentecostal, yeah, but I no. can admire it. In fact, I often say if I weren't a Catholic, if I had to be some form Protestant, I probably would be a Pentecostal, uh, because I believe in the reality of the Holy Spirit and the rest of it, but all of that. Added up to a strange moment in the 80s and 90s in which, if you were a liberal in, say, the Episcopal Church or the Presbyterian Church, you identified more fully and completely with liberals in the other denominations Absolutely. than you did with conservatives in your own denomination.
0: Well, and in, the same increasingly
1: yeah. became true for the conservatives.
0: A- absolutely, and and I'm about to make that point for you and say I'm in pretty constant communication with uh, evangelicals uh, left in the United Methodist Church, which you know is one of those interesting stories right now. And uh, I have close family ties to Methodism, and as a Southern Baptist, I, I want to say that uh, Methodism had uh, about as much to do with the shaping of American culture as Baptists did. Uh, uh, especially on the frontier and especially in the South, yeah. But uh, but when you look at, the, at, at where they are right now, I mean the the liberals uh, they gain control of the apparatus because that's that they, they identified with the larger elite uh, in in the United States, and so the the problem is that the elites had the lawyers to establish the rules and uh, they own the property which leave these people trapped and uh so it's a very sad thing to see and it it makes me by the way all the more ardently baptist because uh, we own our own property and uh, baptists will divide like you say but and and de Tocqueville observed but uh we uh we we don't have to leave everything behind to a liberal elite well and
1: here we Mm -hmm. can I come back to Rauschenbusch
0: Please do Here fascinates
1: me. I really no. and fascinates me to a degree that makes me unhappy with some of our friends, Al, for mm. whom Rauschenbusch, they don't read him. His name is just a marker for evil. Right. Uh, and I've read him and thought about him. Mm-hmm. I think he's a brilliant rhetorician. Yeah. Uh, but I also think he was a serious Christian and he was preaching to people who had the Bible and knew the Bible. Uh, He was preaching to Protestant audiences, uh, and his writing is filled with biblical references. He took the Bible incredibly seriously. He knew the Bible very well. He is a believer in any sense, and our friends who want to just use him as a marker of evil are just wrong. It's two generations later, uh, and I think Machen saw this. That's why he's so important. But the problem is with the theology of the social gospel movement is not uh, what manifests itself right like there. Rauschenbusch came to a to a you know an inner city parish or church in New York City and was radicalized. By the weekly burials of children, he had to oversee, right. you know, from the factories and the pollution and the rest mm-hmm. of it, and he just became filled with a righteous anger, which Al, I think, was genuinely righteous.
0: No, I, I get kid. that, and and yet, I mean, Rauschenbusch, I do see as the the fountain of uh, theological poison in many ways. That uh, that miss, I mean, it transformed the gospel, but the point so, is, had Rauschenbusch maintained an orthodox christology and understanding of of uh, of the gospel and applied it to the horrifying injustices he was seeing before his eyes every day i think he would now be a heroic figure rather than a tragic figure but he as you say he could operate in a world in which he assumed that people had basic biblical impulses but his own children and grandchildren uh they, they, they transcended all right. of that. And they,
1: This is why that theological move that he makes is so pernicious. Mm-hmm. Um, even though he's, because within two generations, within one generation, you get kind of a generic Christianism out right. of this. Within two generations, you get rejection of Christianity
0: right. out
1: of this. Uh, and, and he's, it, it, and he's just, brilliant in his yeah. way, mm-hmm. but he sets up what's going to happen. And he does it out he's not always careful. I mean, I think he is very right. really smart, but smart as a second tier thinker, I and mean, he's not Nietzsche, he's not you know John Henry Newman, he's not one of these great figures of intellectual life, but he's but he's a good, solid second tier thinker. And sometimes he's not careful. So he'll say one, for instance, there's one passage which he regretted, in which he said um, the idea that Christ died to alleviate the sins of a coal miner in Tennessee who gets drunk and beats his wife is ridiculous. Um, What Christ dies for is to expose the social sins uh, that—and he regretted that, right? That was an overstatement. But it's it's an overstatement in a line with what he would say. And in the book and elsewhere, I say what happened with the social gospel movement is— a very it starts with a very clear appreciation of a revelation, an ethical revolution in the revelation that the Christ event brings us and the Christ preaching brings us, but also the Christ event. I mean, they, they did think that his yeah. death and resurrection are actually happened and are important. And by our understanding that and understanding how Christ has broken over, open for us to see the social sins, we can climb up the ladder to the higher ledge of morality. And the metaphor I use, which I got from Wittgenstein, the metaphor I use is the trouble with ladders is once you've reached the higher ledge, you don't need the ladder anymore. If Christ is the ladder, we needed to reach our, our high moral state. Then once we're there, we don't need Christ anymore.
0: No, that's a, that's a brilliant metaphor. Uh, what I was going to say just a few moments ago is that uh, with Rauschenbusch, uh, I, I like to compare him to uh, a figure in it's, they're not exactly contemporaneous, but they overlapped a good deal uh, uh, in their influence. It'd be Charles Spurgeon in London. because uh, Spurgeon held to a, a very clear Orthodox theological uh, commitment, very clear. Uh, but at the same time he started some of the most widespread, Philanthropic uh, ministries. I mean, his church was, you know, Elephant and Castle. Uh, it was on the wrong side of the Thames. Uh, he, he, it, it was a, a church of the people, and uh, he had dozens of uh, charitable organizations directly under the school. I have one of his wife's receipt books uh, for the orphanage, and I, I just look at that and I go, you know, that, and, and by the way, Spurgeon's uh, influence is still massive uh, among evangelical Protestants, and. Um, uh, who, by the way, some of whom will take his theology without his uh, his ministry to the poor uh, and and the needy. But nonetheless, uh, there, there were counter models, but the, the haunting thing about Russian Bush for me is the fact that there was not a strong, orthodox, equally passionate response uh, that took for granted, uh, that took into account and wasn't going to be satisfied with the burials of all those poor children.
1: The elites chose Rauschenbusch. they chose the social gospel line when um uh, uh when the sermon shall the Fundamentalists win is yeah. preached right um, by your you just named him what's his name uh
0: harry emerson fosdick
1: right uh and fosdick emerges as the winner of that right i mean you know but he is actually it's tried for perception.
0: yeah yeah
1: uh, and you know who his defense counsel was?
0: John Foster Dulles.
1: John Foster Dulles, who is as establishment a blue blooded figure as you were ever going to meet. Absolutely. Uh, and, and Rockefeller Jr. builds him Riverside Church. Mm-hmm. And so the main, or the, the elites of America, the, the old Protestant blue bloods, of which the Dulleses were one of the last families around. And the new wealth of the robber barons right. taking their place in the second generation among those elites. Uh, and by the way, most of those elites before the robber barons were funded by building the Erie Canal, which is why another way I connect. Your, your on, metaphor comes me back. Lord. Yes. yes. Uh, but they're, uh, you know, they, ch- they choose Fosdick. They choose the social gospel law. Uh, and there were there was unhappiness with nature and others, mm-hmm. uh, but it wouldn't rise up to the level that it could actually influence the culture. And thus, the social gospel movement was allowed to follow out its necessary progression, which will end mm-hmm. with the collapse of the mainline Protestant churches in every, deni- in every demographic and statistical measurement, and produce these demons that have gone into politics and infect young people and older people with enthusiasm, with radicalism, with a madness in search of resolution and a hunger for salvation that can never be satisfied.
0: Well, that deserves to be the last word in what has been uh, an exhilarating conversation as always. Uh, Jody, thank you for joining with me in this conversation today. I, uh, I want to tell you, I promised that we would get to your newest book, The Decline of the Novel, but I'm just going to have to ask, because it raises many of these issues, but takes them into an entirely different context that would be fascinating to unpack. So if you'll allow, I, I'd like to say, uh, I'd like to do another conversation with you. Uh, I'd about love that, Al, that.
1: because I do see the novel, the modern novel, yeah. as something that the Protestants gave us, uh, and its failure it comes from the same root. Uh, but well, as I, you say, that's a conversation for another day.
0: It is. But I told uh, one of my colleagues uh, just before uh, this conversation today that uh, your new book, The Decline of the Novel, uh, was a book that uh, I, uh, I regretted only because uh, it had to come to an end. Uh, <laughs> because I felt like I was talking with many friends. Uh, but uh, anyway, we'll hold that for another conversation. But uh, I really want to appreciate the mind you bring to this and the fact that as I get older, conversations like this just become more valuable and uh, and treasured by me. And the fact that we've had conversations through the years just makes it better. And I hope by God's grace we can have many more.
1: Thanks, Al. I enjoy this a great deal.
0: God bless you. Thank you. A central part of our Christian intellectual responsibility is to try to understand what is going on around us in the world to come to a true account of what's happening and what these things mean, to try to understand the currents that are shaping the society around us, and, of course, to try to determine our Christian responsibility in the midst of this very urgent age. That should lead us to some really important conversations. I feel like today's conversation was one that was not only fascinating but also important, raising an incredible array of issues that thoughtful Christians ought to think about. And, of course, it's not just a matter of thinking about these issues in the abstract. It's a matter of looking at our own lives, our own marriages, our own churches, our own families, our own communities to see how these issues are being framed and reframed and sometimes unframed. But the conversation today with Jody Bottom helps to underline, I hope, certainly does for me the fact that there are no genuinely non-theological conversations. If you're talking about issues of importance, inevitably, you end up talking about theology but rarely as well or as interesting as that opportunity today. Thanks again to Jody Bottom for joining with me today for Thinking in Public and thank you for joining with us. If you enjoyed this conversation, you will find more than 100 of them at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu for information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thanks for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, Keep Thinking. I'm Albert Moly.